Thank you. Kotonu uh, Nice to be here. Nice to be here and not there, which is a bit strange. Um, I feel quite comfortable with a guitar strapped on, uh, and a little bit less when I've got this um, pulpit in front of me. So um, nice to be here. As Dan mentioned, uh, if you've been hanging around, we are in this uh, series, Holy Following Christ. Um, and we started um, a number of weeks back talking about the Spirit-empowered life. Uh, life without the Spirit um, runs dry. It is God's Spirit at work within us that makes participation in the life of God possible. So that's a good place to start. And then last week, Dan introduced the second facet of Christ's life that we're exploring, uh, the Word-anchored life. Dan took some time last week uh, to, to speak about the Word in three ways. The Word written, Scripture, the living Word, Jesus, and the declared Word, the proclamation, the preaching of the good news, the Gospel. And he drew our attention uh, to a passage in Luke 4, and a moment in the narrative where Jesus reads from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. I think we're, we're both pushing the button. It's really exciting. It's a battle. He reads it. Um, so it reads like this in Luke. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And then he rolled it up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened to him. He began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So here, as Dan pointed out, we have the word of God, reading the word of God, declaring the word of God. And when we speak of being a word-anchored people and a word-anchored community, we have in mind all three of these words, the word written, the word embodied, and the word preached. This morning, we're going to explore how Jesus exemplifies the word-anchored life. We're going to attend to the way Jesus engages with Israel's scriptures. How does Jesus handle the written word? What does he encourage us to do? So as we look at his life and witness, we will see a life that is fundamentally anchored, fundamentally tethered to the word of God. And it is right that we look to Jesus, the word made flesh, the living word who dwelt among us, for he is our way. Thomas Akempis famously said this, we must imitate Christ's life and his ways if we are to be truly enlightened and set free from the darkness of our own hearts. Let it be the most important thing we do then, to reflect on the life of Christ. So this morning, that is what we are going to do. Uh, This morning, we're going to look to become word-anchored people. And by doing that, we're going to look at Christ's life, his witness, his teaching and ministry, that we may come to see our deep need for the word of God to be living and active in our lives, directing, correcting, training and equipping us to be the people of God. And this morning I want to centre our reflection on one particular story that we find in Matthew chapter 4. It's the temptation of Christ. You can also find it in Luke 4 and a little passing comment in Mark's gospel as well. We're going to turn to Matthew chapter 4. But before we do that, I want to pick, um, turn our attention to um, one, one thing that Natalie mentioned in an introductory talk of this series. Natalie drew our attention to the reality that we make our way in the world by story. We all live by one story or another. 
We swim in stories. We are immersed in contending narratives, stories that make claims about the kind of world we are living in, stories that make claims about hope and happiness, fear and future possibilities, stories that make claims about agency and authority and authenticity. And each of these stories portrays some vision of the good life. And as Natalie uh, outlined, these stories, they seep into us by our immersion in rhythms and practices, by the habits that we keep. We absorb visions of the good life through the images and metaphors and symbols that are surrounding us. And these stories become a part of us. They become how we see and attend the world. They become a part of us not just at the cognitive level, in fact, not primarily, I would argue, at the cognitive level. Much of the time they bypass our heads and grab a hold of our hearts. They attend to our imagination. And it is our imagination this, that connects the dots, drawing together the many metaphors and symbols and images to make meaning. This crucial meaning-making centre of our lives, the imagination, it trades in stories. So we live by the stories we believe. Stanley Harawas suggests this, that we, uh, sorry, we are as we come to see. And as that seeing becomes enduring in our intentionality. We are as we come to see, and as that seeing becomes enduring in our intentionality. And he goes on to say, we do not come to see just by looking, but by training our vision through metaphors and symbols. So what metaphors and symbols are training your heart? What metaphors and symbols are training our vision? What metaphors and symbols are shaping the way we see the world? What stories are we soaking in such that they give us a read on reality? Missionary pastor and theologian Leslie Newbegin made this challenging, but I think really astute remark. He said, if the biblical story is not the one that really controls our thinking, then inevitably we shall be swept away into the story that would tell us, uh, the world would tell us about itself. We shall become increasingly indistinguishable from the pagan world of which we are a part. The stories we believe, intentionally or unintentionally, become the script for our living. So this morning, this morning, the key question I want each of us to ask is what is the script for my living? What story am I living by? What is the authoritative text by which I live? And I want to return to this question in about 22 minutes. So let us turn our attention to Matthew chapter 4. I'm going to invite my friend Lucy up, uh, and I'm going to invite you to stand as we read Scripture together. Matthew 4, verse 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, 
and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. Thank you. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Okay, so much could be said about this text. There is a whole lot going on here. Thank you, Lucy. We don't have time to talk uh, in detail and in depth and go after all these rabbit trails, but we could talk about the echoes of Israel's wanderings. Uh, Israel's 40 years mirrored by Jesus' 40 days. Israel's deliverance through the waters out into temptation. Jesus is passing through the waters of baptism into the wilderness. We could speak of the wilderness as a place of stripping away, of learning obedience, of restoring. Uh, the ancients thought of the desert as a place of spiritual warfare, a place like a spiritual outer space where you went to do warfare with demons is where they lived. Uh, we could speak about what Christ achieved through the wilderness. The writer to the Hebrews tells us um, that Jesus uh, we have in him a high priest who is able to empathise with us, for he has been tested in every way. And there's also the important fact that Jesus was hungry, and we could spend a lot of time just thinking about that. Uh, it would be worth us spending a lot of time thinking about that. The Gospel writers want to highlight the humanity of Jesus. This is not some Thor-like demigod. This is not some spiritual uh, person floating around. Jesus' humanity really matters. We could talk about that. Today, I want for us to focus on one thing, and that is the reoccurring use of this word, these words, it is written. Here in the wilderness, we have a concentrated example of the way in which Scripture functions authoritatively in Jesus' life. Under the fatigue of fasting and the weariness of spiritual warfare, Jesus turns to Scripture. He is not guided by his feelings, his responses are not dictated by the, ha the harsh conditions he's in. Jesus is grounded, anchored upon the words of God. So in this text, we have three temptations, three things that we could call uh, alternative scripts for living that he has offered. And we have three anchoring words, three responses from Jesus that show us clearly that scripture functions as his script for living. So let us look at each of these uh, responses and temptations in turn. So first couple of verses. The first temptation. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. As we have already heard, Jesus was hungry. Talk of bread surely was, um, struck him with pangs of hunger. But the words if you are the son of God, and I'm not sure how the tempter said it, but maybe something snarky like that, these might have struck him a little harder than the hunger pangs. The tempter calls into question Christ's identity, offering him a more fashionable and more popular approach to being the son of God. Of course, the, tempter, uh, the, the temptation sorry, to turn stones into bread is a taunt to ease Jesus' hunger, but it is also much more. As Richard Foster notes, it was a temptation to become 
a glorious miracle baker and provide wonder bread for the masses. This is a temptation about economics. Can't the Son of God alleviate world hunger? Can't the Son of God provide food for the masses? Surely, says the tempter, the Son of God can step in and eradicate economic, uh, exploitative economics. Here, Jesus is tempted to take on a different script about what it means to be the Son of God. So Jesus turns to the book of Deuteronomy for his response. It is written, Jesus says, and turns to chapter 8 and to words that Moses speaks at the edge of the Jordan River as the people prepare to cross into the promised land. Words that are from God, God's words to form and to shape a holy people. Words that give identity and calling and mission. It is worth hanging out in Deuteronomy 6 through 8. It is is the money stuff. Deuteronomy 8 is a passage about life and death, about what will promote life and what will destroy life. And centred to this passage is Israel's understanding that God gives life by speech. God gives life by his word. He speaks creation into being. He separates light and darkness with his commands. He orders the watery chaos with his words. God's words are creative words. And Israel understands that life comes from hearing, from receiving and remembering the words that God speaks. Death comes from forgetting, ignoring and dismissing God's words. Jesus' identity is grounded here in Israel's identity. A people spoken into being, a people called to remembrance and trust. And as Deuteronomy 8 goes on to say, Those who remember, those who trust will eat and be satisfied. There will be bread without scarcity. So he says, it is written. And turns to this life-forming passage in Deuteronomy. So let's move to the second temptation, second response. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift up in their hands, uh, lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord to the test. Again, we have an alternative script offered to Jesus, one that calls into question his identity as the son of God. The devil offers Jesus the chance to gain fervent support from the religious elite. Just imagine the kind of zealous support Christ could have garnered by pulling off this kind of a stunt. Jumping off the temple, being caught by angels, would be like a divine endorsement within the temple boundaries. It would gather the crowd. It is the temptation here to tick the religious box, to make a show and to receive approval. And interestingly, this temptation comes with scriptural backing. The devil quotes Psalm 91 in an attempt to use the word of God in formulating a faulty script for living. Of course, the devil has no desire for Jesus to truly live out the faith of the psalmist, the movement through the psalms from obedience to praise. No, the devil doesn't want us to involve ourselves in the full story of God's redemptive purposes. The devil here is about abstraction. 
Here's about picking and choosing texts to suit his agenda, to highlight one promise and set it against the rest. The devil loves a proof text. The devil loves a proof text. The words of God plucked out of context, a script conjured up of pieces of the story while ignoring the full, expansive, compelling, capacious and glorious story of a loving, suffering, redeeming and victorious giver of life. There is no proof texting with Jesus. The script for his living is the full revelation of God. The story told in the law and the prophets, the story of creation and covenant of redemption and blessing for the whole of the cosmos. It is also written, he says. And again, he turns to the book of Deuteronomy. It is also written. The also is crucial. It is also written as a submission to the authority of the larger story, the entire canon of Scripture. Jesus doesn't pick and choose in an attempt to satisfy his hunger or avoid rejection from the religious leaders. The also keeps us from taking sentences from the story and using them for an alternative script, a script of our own making, a script shaped by our own ambition and our desires and our needs and our wants. It is also written. So let us turn to the, the third temptation and the third response. Oh, it's the wrong place. No, it's okay. I don't know how we did that, but that's right. The third one. Again, the devil took him to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So many in Jesus' day expected the Messiah to come and to lift them from the burden uh, of Roman occupation. Hope in the Messiah was, for many, a political hope. The longing and expectation that a Messiah would come with military might and emancipate them from the tyranny of empire. This third temptation in Matthew's gospel is the temptation for Jesus to buy into coercive politics, politics by force, power by illicit means, to grasp after what will be his actually in the fullness of time anyway. The devil offered a shortcut script for Jesus' living. A script uh, that went like this, a way to glorify, uh, sorry, a way to glory without suffering. He offered what ultimately was Christ anyway, without the cross. Revelation chapter 5, we see that the glory and the splendour is Christ's anyway. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and glory and honour and praise. Jesus' response is strong and swift. Away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Again, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy. Again, Jesus shows that he is tethered to the life-promising, life-forming, life-giving, life-sustaining voice that addresses and shapes the people of God. Again, we see that the revelation of God in and through Holy Scripture is the authoritative text for living. Jesus submits his thoughts, his feelings, 
and his actions to the trustworthy God. Sorry, the trustworthy word of God. So this question, how does Jesus exemplify the word anchored life? Here in the wilderness, Jesus rejected the alternative scripts, the counter-narratives for living. He models to us a confidence and trust in the word. He is not blown about. He is anchored. Anchored such that his hunger and fatigue don't dictate his decisions and direction. Richard Foster comments, what we see in those 40 crucial days is someone who understood with clarity the way of God and who had the internal resources to live in that way, instinctively and without reservation. Jesus understood with clarity the way of God because he had internalised the word of God. He had taken it into himself chewed on it, digested it, and let it become a part of the very fabric of his being. Jesus had the resources to live the way of God instinctively and without reservation because the scriptures were script for him. Words to live by. Words he participated in and didn't keep at arm's length. This script gave him his identity and his mission. For Jesus in the wilderness, scripture is the anchor that resourced him to resist the allure of approval and and to reject glory without the cross. I want to just zoom out a little bit from this Matthew 4 passage. Just zoom out a little bit so we can witness a little more of how Jesus embodies, models, and teaches the word anchored life. In Luke's gospel, After the temptation, Jesus returns from the wilderness in the power of the Spirit, enters the synagogue, reads Isaiah's scroll, and declares that the prophet's words are being fulfilled in the midst of his hearers. That little passage that we glanced at at the beginning. Jesus here claims to fulfill Scripture. As we look at Matthew's account, Matthew has Jesus returning from the wilderness to begin his ministry. And importantly, Matthew frames this as the fulfillment of more of Isaiah's words. And we read soon after that of Jesus climbing a mountain, of Jesus sitting down and beginning to teach what we call the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. Matthew wants us to see that in Jesus we have a new Moses, one who teaches Israel's scriptures with authority. And in that sermon, Jesus says these really important words. Jesus tells the crowd, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The word fulfill here uh, that is used is repeated throughout the gospel. It is best understood as to consummate, to carry through to the end, to accomplish. To fulfill the law and the prophets is for Jesus to be the realisation of what the law and the prophets anticipated. As one commentator put it, to fulfill means to bring to completion a trajectory which Old Testament events and teachings set in motion. Our gospel writers are intent on showing us that in Jesus, the Word made flesh, the, the incarnate Word of God, that in His life, death, resurrection and ascension, Israel's story, indeed our own human story, is being consummated as coming to fulfilment. 
So in the wilderness, we see that Jesus is the word anchored life, trusting the life-giving words of God. And here on the mountain, we see that he intends to shape a people by his words to be a word-anchored people. He is the word-anchored, and he wants us to be the word-anchored people. So not only is Jesus' word anchored, his words anchor. He is the anchor. And he calls us to put our hope and our trust in him that we might be secure and safe, anchored to reality amidst the storm surges of stories that we swim in. So we began by asking a question. And I want to return to that question now as we come into land. What is the script for my living? What script do I live by? Or maybe what script do I want to live by? We've looked at Jesus in the wilderness and have seen that Scripture was the world that he inhabited. It informed how he thought and felt and acted. Scripture was script for Jesus. The question remains, how do we come to live in the story? How do we make the Word of God the authoritative script for our living? And do we want to? The Western cultural stories in which we swim have trained us in choice. And they've placed what I need, what I want, what I feel at the controlling centre of our lives. What I need, what I want, what I feel is a compelling story. It's a compelling story. It's a convincing story. It's a story that, tell, uh, that the world tells about itself. And we're marinating in that story day to day. It is a script in which we attempted, uh, it is a script that we attempted to make our own. It is a temptation for us. We are encouraged on all sides to take charge of our own lives and use our own experience as the authoritative text to which we live or by which we live. The sovereign self becomes the script for living instead of the holy scriptures. Eugene Peterson, in a wonderful book titled Eat This Book, I can't recommend it highly enough. It is fabulous. Eat This Book. He, um, he encourages us to approach the Bible as story. He calls us to inhabit the text, to enter into the world that it reveals, and to participate in the activity of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. To get in on the action is how he puts it. And he says this, Christian reading is participatory reading, receiving the words in such a way that they become interior to our lives. The rhythms and images become practices of prayer, acts of obedience, ways of love. The metaphor he employs is that of eating. We are invited to eat God's word. Reading that enters our soul like food enters our stomach, spreads through our blood and becomes holiness and love and wisdom. How do we begin to inhabit the world of Scripture and like Jesus have it become the script for our living? We eat the book. We chew on Scripture. We digest it. Stories as we know become a part of us. They train us in ways of seeing and attending the world. In light of the stories that we swim in, it is vital that we eat the book. Not just nibble the book, eat the book. 
We need to get these words inside us, words that deal with our souls. Words that form a life that is congruent with the world that God has created, the salvation that he has enacted and the community that he has gathered. Faithful Israel knew this. Israel knew that it needed to be immersed in story for the words of God to be the living script that she walked. So in Deuteronomy, again, can I recommend Deuteronomy 6 or 8? Please read it. It's wonderful. It's got a lot to say that we should attend to. Israel, knowing that she needed to live in this, make the words of God's script, says this. Well, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and of your gates. Teach the words of God. Talk about the words of God. Talk about them with everyone. Let your working and your thinking, your hands and your head, all of your work and thinking be done in the light of them. Surround yourself with the words of God. Let the metaphors and images and symbols train you in seeing rightly. The prophets of old ate the book. Jesus ate the book. We are called to eat the book. That is to lovingly and attentively practice entering into the world of the Bible, into the capital R reality that it sets before us, and to dwell there and to listen to the voice that addresses us. And as we submit our lives to what we read in Scripture, we find that we are not being led to see God in our stories, but our stories in God's. God is the larger context and plot in which our stories find themselves. God is the larger context and plot. So becoming a word-anchored people is not, about, it's not simply about accepting a set of beliefs regarding Jesus, a belief that might get us into heaven when we die. This is about apprenticeship. This is about a life formed and fashioned after Jesus. The kind of reading that involves us, shapes us, gets the text in our bones is what we need. That's what I need. The aim here is not to know more information, but to be more, to be more involved in the life of God, to be more obedient to the voice that addresses us on each page, to be more in love with the Father and with the Son and with the Holy Spirit. So let me conclude with these words that Jesus spoke as he concluded his sermon on the mounts. And let us just sit with these words for a moment. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundations on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice 
is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. This is the word anchored Jesus anchoring us with his word. Why don't we stand and we will pray just to finish. Jesus, you invite us to come to you. You invite us to come and sit at your feet, to listen, to learn, to find rest for our weary souls. You invite us to hear your words and put them into practice, to live in them to make them the script for our living, to participate in the words that you speak, to practice them. And we want to be shaped by your word. We want to be anchored amidst the storms that surround us. Lord, we desire to live in your ways, to have our lives be um, bred for others. You, the bread of life, we need you. We need you to fill us with your spirit. We need you to fill us with your life-giving words. That our lives would be made up of the images and the metaphors and the symbols that you give the sentences and the stories that you speak, that ultimately our lives would be able to nourish, would be your life nourishing through us, the world in which we live. Lord, we attempted to uh, listen to alternative scripts and we confess the ease to which that happens. Lord, we hear your words today, your word to build our lives to be tethered and anchored to your word. And so we ask for help. Give us a desire to feed and feast on your word. Give us a desire to have it form and fashion and shape us into your people. That we might go and be good news in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you.